freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello singing Let Freedom Ring, getting us tuned in and sharpened up for the work ahead. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malika Leem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling all justice seekers, and we're tuned into the big and agitating questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that guide and motivate us? We're together in this intentional space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, busy in projects of repair and revolution. We're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum wrapped in a contradiction. These lands, stewarded by many peoples and lineages, ancient and contemporary home to many indigenous peoples including the Three Fires Confederacy. We acknowledge them and thank them as we remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today, an old favorite, Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere. The nowhere of this freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, the nowhere of utopia. This is your time to put words on the page without second-guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. What culture do you inherit and claim? And what culture do you make? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's now time for our guest speaker series, activists, authors, academics, and artists 
After Hours, where we talk to people who we hope will help us think more deeply and more clearly about the world we inhabit, name this political moment, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our radical imaginations and ask both what's going on and then what is to be done. I'm so grateful to be joined today by a longtime colleague, collaborator, and comrade, Therese Quinn, who's an anti-racist queer activist focusing on cultural justice. She's also an associate professor and director of museum and exhibition studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Her latest book is called School, Questions About Museums, Culture, and Justice to Explore in Your Classroom. Thanks for being here, Therese. Thank you, Bill. I'm super excited to be here. (laughs) I'm just thrilled to have you, and it's always good to see you. I always catch up, and I always learn new things, so that's important. Um, You and I have known each other for a long time. What is our origin story? When did we meet? Well, I don't remember the exact date, but it was in the... Well, (laughs) goddamn, I thought you'd remember the exact date. I know it was in the 90s. And somehow I got invited to visit your classroom. And it was a classroom of pre-service teachers you were working with. And I was working at the Field Museum, I think, at the time. And you invited me to come and talk about how teachers might use museums in their classroom teaching. And it was a wonderful conversation. And at the end of it, you said, you ought to come back to graduate school. (laughs) And I I was like, wow, it really blew my mind because I had never thought I would go to graduate school, actually. I'm not sure whether I should apologize (laughs) or pat myself on the back. (laughs) Because, <laughs> you know, you, you, for me, you've always been a, an exemplary activist, but you have found a way to do something that I think is hugely important that I'm not good at, but I'm always trying to figure out. And that is how to meld, how to marry uh, justice organizing and cultural artistic expression. And you've done it your whole life. I mean, so how did you get into the movement in the first place? How did you, what pulled you in? Well, I had the distinct uh, good luck to be born uh, in Northern California and to grow up there in the late sixties and early seventies. So I grew up in the Bay area and outside in you know, the East Bay in a kind of a hotbed of activism and uh, everything from the Cockettes and Allen Ginsberg to um you know, just amazing queer organizing. All of that was happening out there and, and all kinds of other things. You know, the anti-war movement, everything was just right there. And I was a teenager and I got involved in it, you know, and I enjoyed the the theatrics of the protest that was happening at the time. So one of the first things I did while I was still in high school was to join a lesbian theater group called Le Théâtre Lesbienne. I starred as Queen Christina of Sweden and an Amazon. <laughs> and we crashed the Sacramento uh, Bicentennial Parade and we, we did all kinds of fun stuff. And then took a little uh, 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 lesbian history uh, pr- production on, on a tour all through the Bay Area. So that kind of got me started on this uh, way of thinking about bringing together social movement work, things that I was really excited about and committed to with um, theatrics and pleasure and joy. And I, I still try to bring those things together whenever I have the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, and, and you always, as I said earlier, you always kind of not only inspire me, but kind of tweak my thinking. So I remember years ago when um, 
I was like enthusiastic about attending the gay pride parade. And, and I told you I was going to go and bring my kids. And you said, Oh God, the gay pride parade. And you had a critique <laughs> that was, that was all about Mayor Daly being in the parade. And I can't quite remember, but you, just when something seems, uh, I don't know, edgy and insurgent to me, you have to remind me that it's not as edgy and insurgent as it might look. And there's something more insurgent to do. Well, it's always great to be keep you know thinking of that critical edge, right? So on the one hand, yeah, it's wonderful to have a, a gay pride parade in some ways, but it's not wonderful to have a gay pride parade that's headed up by Mayor Daly or Rahm Emanuel or you know any of these other people. So um, I'm really taking a lot of heart lately from the queer liberation parade that's happening, it has been happening in New York for the last few years. It seems to me that's a model that, that I want that. And mm. in other ways, gay shame that's out in California. I love that group too, because they're always kind of poking at uh, the received, like, you know, wisdom about what it means to be a gay person and pointing back to the really radical roots of all these social movements. Yeah. I think what, what you're reminding me of is it's very easy for what's insurgent in one moment to become common sense in the next moment, or even to be co-opted and become something that it never was meant to be. So if you don't feel the insurgency within your activities, you're organizing your movements, something's missing. And as, as I say, you've always had a way of reminding me of that on a lot of levels. Oh, well, thank you, Bill. I'm, I feel like I'm always learning and being re-reminded of it myself. But I think a, a good guideline for queer liberation or gay pride parade, whatever you want to call it, is no police, no politicians, and get the beer trucks out of the parade <laughs> if you can do that. And, you know, it's sort of an anti-capitalist approach to all these things. So I think my f- most fun I had with the gay pride parade in Chicago was crashing it with a group called Queer to the Left. And we just spoofed the hell out of the human rights campaign people and the, you know, all all of those politicians kind of shilling for the gay vote and tried to point back to the really, uh, you know, what we needed to be doing with that movement. And I think a a version of that is the queer liberation parade right now that really is just looking backwards again, you know, about what were the roots of these kinds of parades and marches. Yeah. And I think what you said is really important. And you said, I mentioned earlier that you've been an anti-racist activist for all your life. And, and I think that keeping capitalism and white supremacy in the center of your analysis has allowed you not to kind of go off the tracks on a lot of different things, whether it's art or museums or queer liberation. I mean, I think that noting that it, we're, we're really talking about something that's deep and fundamental. And if capitalism can co-opt our desires and our, you know, our expressions, they still aren't ending capitalism and they're still an exploitative um, predatory system. Uh, so I think that's really central to what you do. Yeah, totally. No, I think you're right. And I, I think more recently, I definitely uh, aiming directly at white supremacy and aiming at capitalism as a, a structure that causes great misery. Both those structures cause great misery for people. Uh, and more recently, I've been thinking a lot about disability and disability justice. And I think there's some um, really provocative, interesting thinking and, and organizing going on around that too. So I think, you know, to use the the, the Old language that's now new language again. Intersectional approaches are very important to this, looking at how these kinds of fields of oppression are interconnected. Right. You know, Malik Alim and I have been talking about the fact that we have yet to have a disability activist on our on our 
program, and we really must. Um, but, and you bring that in right now, and I think that's important. Have you seen Crip Camp, the movie? Oh, my, I love that movie. That movie yeah. was just one of the most inspiring movies yeah. because you know it was a, about disability justice, but more broadly, it was about social movements and how they come up through the desires and the passions and the the flirtations and you know all of that that happened at that camp. People coming together about the things that they need and then making the claims for those things. I, I just love that movie. I'm right now. I'm reading Disability Visibility by a fantastic activist organizer, Alice Wong. And that book is one you should look at. Every every small essay in it is a, a just a, a jewel of thinking about disability and access. It's yeah. really great. Yeah, I know that book, and she is amazing. Um, Crip Camp, you know what you're saying is so is lessons for all movements because people finding one another, seeing one another, and then creating an identity, but naming an obstacle and creating an identity to resist that obstacle is so brilliant. And it's portrayed so well over this, that period of time and something that didn't exist before disability rights suddenly existed. And it was because folks facing a similar kind of thing. But I knew you would, I, I, I didn't know you'd seen it, but I knew you would love it because among the many things that are so outrageously wonderful in it is sexuality. Oh, I mean, yeah. that these, you know, mm -hmm. that these folks yeah. with, you know, really severe disabilities, this one woman who's, um, uh, you know, is so proud when she's having a, a problem and she goes to the doctor and it turns out she has gonorrhea and she's just ecstatic because nobody <laughs> believed that this disabled person had a sex life, right? And she said, fuck y'all, y'all. You know, yeah, it was, like, yeah. it was I, a wonderful moment. It's a wonderful moment. And I don't know if you know the group Sins Invalid, the performance group that's out in the Bay Area. You should, when you're out in California, definitely say, check out. Say it again. Say it again. Sins Invalid headed up by Patty Byrne and Leroy oh, yeah. Moore and some other folks out there uh, have done just wonderful productions, again, about that sort of nexus of of love, lust, and desire, and the body, and the body in all the forms, and disability, and uh, just claiming all of that and the right to joy and pleasure. It's it, mm -hmm. really a wonderful group. I don't know if you know this, but you you get me in trouble sometimes. And um, when I was a professor at UIC and you were a graduate student there, you got me in trouble um, because I had, you remember that I had political slogans and pictures and diagrams and cartoons all over my door, but I had a lot of wall space next to my door. So I kept encroaching down the hall towards the secretary's <laughs> office. And, and uh, one day I put up a scarlet letter. Now, what was that poster that you gave me? Do you remember this? That, um, okay, it was a poster that was about sexual pleasure it was about sexual freedom and it oh. was kind of it was a kind of a counter to the kind of prudish you know you know let's keep sex away from kids and yeah. and and i can't now remember the slogan it, but it was well i it, that was created by really one artist designer whose name i'm blanking out not i'm sorry <laughs> but yeah. but but the 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 project that she created for herself was coalition for positive sexuality that's what it is exactly C yeah cps and she went to um, various Chicago public school, also CPS events like the prom and passed out these posters, which were, again, a reclaiming of sexuality by young 
young women primarily in her posters. Yeah, and young queer women and passed out safer sex packets. So it'd be some condoms and some lube and things like that. And I did that with her for a while. It was really fun. We would just go to the prom and pass these out and I had such a good time and her posters were beautiful. I'm glad you brought that up because I've forgotten about the posters. Well, it's funny. I put one of those posters on my wall and several professors complained and the dean came down and made me take it down. And Uh not only did I have to take down that poster, I had that what he said was you can have anything on your door but when you start encroaching on the wall of the hallway <laughs> no you can't so it was it was one of those wonderful distinctions you know right uh, this okay is- yeah, there's something about this that is so typical, though, for uh, the way I think about the important work that deans do, right? Exactly. Police, policing the walls. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> but I also, I love it, you know, you have free expression, but just keep it within your own door, damn yeah, it. You know, totally. it, it's very funny. Um, it, it brings to mind, though, you raise the question of intersectionality. There are two things that come to mind. One is, you are a creative tactician, and I am not. And so, my, my list of tactics kind of is go carry a picket sign or throw a rock. I mean, I, you know, I'm very limited, <laughs> but, but I remember the, you and your comrade colleague, Erica Miners went out to Wheaton college and did a whole series of, what, what was that? Yes. Explain that actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, both of us, Erica and I are both at the, at the time we were both involved with teacher education and I was tasked with um, participating in the reaccreditation of a program, a teacher education program at the School of the Art Institute. So I was directing the undergraduate teacher ed program there. And it turned out that this uh, reaccreditation event was held at Greenville College in a dry town in Southern Illinois that uh, on the campus of uh, a, some kind of Christian conservative sect. I don't know, remember what it was, but uh, w- which required all of its students and employees to sign an oath uh, before they got their job or were admitted to the school, agreeing that homosexuals were condemned and were they equated homosexuals with murderers and rapists and we were all condemned to hell, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was so pissed off that I had to go to this four-day accreditation seminar at this campus that when I got done with that, I, I vowed that I was going to make that impossible to happen to other queer people. And so Erica and I, also queer and, and in teacher ed, Banded together, we went out to a follow-up event out at Wheaton College, which is another one of these Christian colleges that have teacher ed programs, but require these kind of lifestyle oaths or covenants of their employees and students. And we took a a counter oath with us that was, um, we said we were inviting people to sign this love-centered oath, love and affirmation, as opposed to a a hatred and exclusion oath that the school itself required. And we took it around to all our colleagues who were all these teacher educators. We got a lot of signatures um, and a lot of really interested questions like, what is this? I didn't know Wheaton had this kind of policy. So that it was a really good educational event. And then also the sad experience of of uh, taking this, uh, like we, we took a bathroom break at some point and people actually followed us into the bathroom and said, look, I'm queer. I am here. I'm also, you know, I can't, I can't be seen talking to you or signing this, but I just want you to know I'm, you know, I'm in favor of this. And it just made us want to cry, but we were, we also realized they were brave, you know, but, yeah. and then subsequently we both Erica and I were censured by Wheaton College, they, their right. their august body of administrators took a vote to censure us, and 
And well, I'm so, so proud yeah. <laughs> because they banned yeah. they banned my book to teach um, the journey of a teacher in what? their education program. Yeah, many professors had assigned that book, and Wheaton College uh, wow. alumni found out that it was written by me, and therefore they bombarded the administration banned it so you and yeah. i are linked up again this is so once fun. again this we're bonded so nice. in our uh, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be handcuffed together in the yeah. same cell somewhere but I, no I, I love that and it, because it was so creative and so direct action and the sad but beautiful story you just told about folks following you how would they how would they have come to understand if you hadn't done that education slash organizing moment and they came out of the woodwork not fully but for you and who knows where that led them they did and and we we felt the solidarity in that we knew that was as much um as as some people could do and they did that and that was something that they did which was better than doing nothing which is also what we told ourselves and i will say you know it was fun and interesting to do that project but it was also hard because there's that kind of uh and maybe you've i'm sure you've felt this. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe you haven't felt this, but this thing of like putting yourself out there in, on, in the front and then you take certain kinds of hits. And if you're a queer person, the hits are, um, you know, just being made to feel um, like a less than human human in, in certain spaces. Sure. So to, sure. know, to know that Wheaton College uh, was talking about Erica and I and, and other queer people in those spaces as um, the equivalent of, you know, rapists and murderers or pedophiles yeah. or whatever. It, it's, it feels gross. You know, it's a, it's a creepy feeling. As much as we tried to resist that, it still is corrosive on, in yeah. some ways. I think, it, I think it's undermining. I think it hurts, but I think there are two other notes to make about it. And one is that you also feel like you stood up against the, forces of darkness and therefore you take a certain amount of pride and it doesn't always feel like a hundred percent great, but you did the right thing in the face of kind of attempts to shame and silence and all that. And the other thing is that when they attack somebody like you, who's, or Erica, two of the most formidable organizers I know and, and, and expressive activists, if, when they, when they try to take you down, the real lesson is for people who don't have the standing and the courage and the, and the backing that you have. I mean, so right now when they're attacking Nicole Hannah Jones, I mean, it's gross in its own right, but the real, audience for that attack from the right wing is the high school teacher in Iowa or the junior professor in some school in Nebraska. That's the audience because silencing isn't just the target itself. And so it makes it even more important that you, Erica, Nicole Hannah-Jones, push back because you're not going to be destroyed by it. You are strong enough to withhold, withstand it. And then importantly, to give other people a model of what that means. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm, and I'm glad for the reminder also of the privilege behind that that allows us to keep moving forward. Absolutely. And in fact, Erica and I went on to get our revenge as we felt about it by writing a book about being censured by Wheaton College and all these other things. I and, remember that. <laughs> yeah. And it was a lot of fun to do that too. And how many people get to write a book about anything, you know, and you exactly. get a book published about anything. So exactly. that felt very good. And we received a lot of feedback from people like you were, you're saying, you know, people in places uh, in the South or various parts of the country facing much more repression than yeah. we face here in the city of Chicago. And thank you for that. And that book was called, tell people. Flaunt it. Queers, yes, exactly. queers organizing for justice and public education. Right. <laughs> we were flaunting uh, it. 
<laughs> yeah, you were flaunting it. And, and you know, the other thing, the kind of classic case it brings back is after 9-11, the, atta- the attacks on from from the president, from the White House, and from Congress on Edward Said and Susan Sontag and Aaron Magruder. I talked to Edward shortly after that, and he said very clearly, look, they're not going to hurt me. I mean, it sucks, but they're not going to actually hurt me. The real audience is that high school teacher or that, you know, that person who wants to speak up, that journalist who knows that the cost is awfully high if they can go after Sontag and Magruder. Okay, so... Therese, let's pivot and talk a bit about your latest book, which I think is phenomenal. And we've done a couple of events with it and had some of your students from the University of Illinois come to those events. But talk a bit about this book, School. Um, And the subtitle is Questions About Museums, Culture, and Justice in Your Classrooms. Something like that. Yeah. To explore sub- in your classrooms. To explore yeah. in your classroom. Okay. Yeah. So we'll get the title straight. Um, I had it in front of me last week, and I just can't find it because I've got too many books around here. <laughs> um, but but talk a bit about that book, how you came to write it, and kind of the mm-hmm. thrust of what you're trying to um, get across. It's a very uh, uh, thin book. It's, it's readable. It's accessible. I know that was intentional, but talk a bit about the production and yeah. content of that book. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. You know, it, it's funny in some ways, I think with this book, I went back to what you originally asked me to do when I visited your classroom all those decades ago, which was really to talk with teachers about how they could use museums as a site for investigation, for inquiry about their justice centered questions. Because your students, many of your students, were were trying to do that kind of teaching anyway. They were teaching for social justice, or aiming to. They were asking questions about uh, justice in the world and and how does what happens in schools connect to that, and how can they teach uh, you know ideas related to that. And so I wanted to use museums as a platform I knew pretty well because I'd worked in them for a little more than a decade. Um, and then, and then later when I had worked with some teacher educate or with teachers or soon to be teachers, uh, to help them think of new ways and interesting ways that they could, uh, bring together their questions with, um, museums and the forms of museums like exhibitions and certain kind of programs, uh, to, uh, just do some interesting teaching. I mean, I, I, most of the teachers that I know are already, uh, full of ideas about the things that they know best. But not that many people know museums super well. And I felt after having worked in museums for a long time, I kind of knew them inside and out. I knew the wonderful things about museums, and there are many, I think. But there are also some horrible things about museums. Uh, And some of those things are particular to museums, like their histories of, uh, you know, the relationship of museums to colonialism, uh, the the ways that they've acquired their collections, if they are museums with collections. Their labor policies suck because capitalism most labor sites suck in many ways. So I knew all those things firsthand. And I thought these are interesting platforms for teaching museums as sources of, of sites of inquiry and uh, places of tensions about all these big questions about the world. Uh, they, people should be using them. Teachers should be using them. But I also knew that I had some, some good resources to share that would make it easier for teachers to do that in their classrooms. So right now is actually a super exciting time to be thinking about museums and their connections to social movements because there is so much organizing happening around museums. So when you talked about my students, students I work with right now, I certainly did come in with some students who are in a master's program that I direct. 
But also there were high school students that came and talked about their own organizing in the city of Chicago to uh, for cultural justice. They wanted to get Latinx history in the Chicago History Museum, which by and large had excluded those histories. And they had a righteous cause and they have done magnificent organizing. So I think there's organizing happening at many levels right now. Like New York has some, oh, go ahead. No, I, I just wanted you to, it's called questions about. So what are some of the questions that you dive into and answer? Yeah. Well, or, or yeah, explore. Yeah. Simple questions like why do museums collect and themes that I wanted to help um, teacher propose some themes that te- teachers could organize a curriculum around. So for in the section that's about collections, um, the, the themes were collections support science. Science is a way of observing and revising ideas that, about, that humans have always used, but then focusing on indigenous forms of science. So, um, yeah, just trying to raise questions. Or how can we celebrate queer lives? I mean, that was one. How can museums welcome all bodies? That explores disability and access in museums. So, um, yeah, those are the kinds of questions that I was asking. And you... Um I remember a couple things that I'd like you to talk about. One is I remember when you took a group of kids to the museums, um, I think it was to the Art Institute, and the kids were seen as outsiders by the by the administration and the and the kind of security people at the museum. And talk a little bit about that story. And I think you ended up with the kids making their own museums, something like that. Yeah, I really had a lot of fun with this project that I did a couple different forms of while I was working on my my um, doctoral work at UIC, uh, where we I worked with students, high school students at various different schools in Chicago to um, visit museums, ask questions, critical questions about museums, like these kinds of questions about how do museums get those collections and, you know, all related things. And then we, we created our own museums, or the students created their own. So I, my job was to basically facilitate that, find them a gallery space and get some materials together. And you did find a gallery space at the university, right? Yes, exactly. The Student Center West. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I remember one kid, the museum, wasn't the museum a backpack? I mean, her, her exhibition, wasn't it a yeah, backpack? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because she had to wear this backpack. Her whole world was sort of encompassed in that space. And another beautiful um, section of an exhibit, a young woman who was a poet, 16-year-old girl at a a Westside High School who was a poet, and she wanted to have in the exhibition uh, a living chrysalis that would hatch and become a butterfly throughout the course of the exhibit, because the exhibit was only up for about a week. And it did that. And then wow. she, she came to the museum and released the butterfly outside. It was so beautiful. I mean, just really That's great. Students have great ideas and high school students are the most brilliant. And they're usually not asked to express those ideas, but that's a great example of turning the museum inside out. When you and your students recently had a reading, you had buttons that you were handing out. What were the, some <laughs> of the slogans on those buttons? Yeah, I, I made a, those with students of, uh, in the master's program I direct. Uh, we had some that said uh, curating resistance. Right. And also resist curation exactly. uh, as kind of a top-down form, the whole idea that there's a curator who makes the big decisions and calls the shots as opposed to a more collaborative kind of, uh, or, or a very different kind of an exhibition, something that functions differently. Um, w- one of the things I found when I was writing this book was um, museums in Cameroon that, uh, or yeah, museums in Cameroon that function as libraries 
So they just check objects out, ceremonial objects, historic objects, to the people who need to use them for whatever purpose. And then they they re- reclaim the objects when they're through being used. And someone asked them, well, what do you do when these you know ceremonial things get damaged? And they're like, well, we, we made them in the first place. We can make new ones if we need to. So uh, they don't worry. It's it, a very different feeling about artifacts and objects in museums. You know, as a teacher, I always wanted to use the museum to the max. I always wanted to have my students be able to go to museums and and check things out when that was possible and so on. But I also wanted to make my classroom more like a smart museum. And I think that's another way to think about it. How could my classroom not be 30 chairs facing the desk, but something that's more interactive, more curatorial? How, How do you think about that? Oh, for sure. Well, there's a fantastic school in Chicago that's called Harold Washington Elementary School. And basically that whole school is a form of a museum. What They have one whole front lobby that's dedicated to it being sort of a more traditional exhibition of Harold Washington, Chicago's first black mayor. So they've got Harold Washington's Cadillac there and a lot of photographs and things like that. So it's a fantastic, weird as heck space in an elementary school. But the rest of the school is also an exhibition space and it just features the families of the children, families and children that attend the school. Wow. Beautiful family portraits all up and down all the walls. And the rest of it is beautiful prints uh, made by Margaret Burroughs that she donated to the school years. So it's just a beautiful place. So that's one way to think about it. The whole school can be a museum and not, and not in the sense of like, let's go there and look at the stuff, but a a space of reverence and beauty and um, cultural joy that we can all feel together. There are Um, activists that you reference all the time. Um, uh, the activist who made himself in an exhibit at the Field Museum. Um, oh, yeah. t- talk about talk about some of yeah. those folks. Well, there's so many artists that have used museums as. Um, uh, sites of provocation or interventions in museums. So you're talking about Guillermo Gomez Pena. Exactly. And, and Coco Fusco, who did wonderful performances across the country and the world, really. But they did a performance in the, the space, a big atrium of, of Field Museum of Natural History, calling into question, um, you know, colonialism, also raising up questions about the histories of museums as sites of exhibition of humans. You know, I grew right. up in California where we were taught the story of Ishi, right? The last Indian. And they often didn't tell the story about how he was then acquisitioned by the anthropology museum in, in uh, the Bay Area, uh, where he was, you know, kept there by Ursula Le Guin's father. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I didn't Dr. know that. Dr. Krober. Yeah. Wow. And then the, the book was written about it by his uh, Ursula Le Guin's mother, Theodora Krober. So she wrote a book about Ishii, but doesn't really tell the whole story about what happened to Ishii and how he was kept as a human display there in that museum. Right. And so, and, and so I, whenever my students get too enamored of kind of qualitative research, I always bring out that every, every colonial expedition took linguists and, and ethnographers with them. And, uh, you know, then I always reference Ishii, the last, yeah. the last American Indian who lived out his life in, in a museum right. or the Venus Hottentot. Um, from South Africa, who exactly? Uh, what's her name? Sarji Sarji Bartman. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there, and there's so many more stories like that. The yeah, stories yeah. keep coming out. The books keep being written about these histories. But so, so you you mentioned, but describe in some detail uh, what 
uh, Guillermo um, Gomez Pena did. Uh, what, what did they do in the Field Museum? You said they were they were making an intervention or critique. Yeah. But what did it look like? Oh, they were in a big cage, basically, and. <laughs> Yeah, on the main floor of the museum. And Coco Fusco, they, both of them were wearing savage, you know, like a, sort of a stereotypical, but but uh, tweaked sort of savage clothing. So they were wearing their high top tennis shoes and, and uh, you know, a Sony Walkman, because it was back then when that's what we, what we used. But also uh, a skirt made out of grass and stuff like that. It was very crazy. And speaking, you know, a uh, completely made up language, but also talking about technology. So, you know, kind of mix and matching these things to right. make fun of all those ideas about who's a savage and whose right. knowledge is valued and what gets to be in a museum, all those kinds of things. You may have seen this, but just for your reference, um, have you seen the, the movie by the latest movie by Raoul Peck called Exterminate All the Brutes? Oh, yeah. Have you seen yeah, it? Yes. Well, the yeah. one, there's one scene in a museum from, um, the movie on the town with Frank Sinatra. And at one point, these sailors who are on the town go to the field museum, uh, the museum of natural history in New York, and they go completely quote native in a most exploitative, stereotypical and humiliating way, yeah. but it's all in good fun. And they're singing and dancing. It's crazy. Yeah. And I think that's what, uh, that's what uh, Coco Fusco and, Gomez Pena had in mind is things like that. Totally. Know? And Field Museum was the right place to do that, you know, exactly. that intervention, because that place is full of actually the human remains and the objects, you know, the Benin collections that were right. taken you know, through the punitive expedition. So all of that kind of, all those histories are right there, which they were right. pointing to. But the thing that I think a lot of people don't know about museums is that there are multiple origin points and multiple histories for those spaces. So, for example, it's just as true um, that museums' uh, roots are in colonialism and punitive expeditions worldwide, as it is also true that the first museum was founded in the 6th century BCE by a woman in what is uh, now known as Iraq. So, you know, these are like competing histories in a way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we need to know all those histories or that the first public museum was born in revolution through the Paris commune. You know, there are different histories about these spaces. Wow. I did not know that. And yeah. so that's, it's worth, it's worth noting that everything is contested. And one of the, you're, you and Lisa Lee are two of the smartest museum people I know. And you're kind of always foregrounding the contestation, the contradiction. It's not one thing or another. And also the interactive, uh, the interactive possibilities in museums, right? That, that there are mm -hmm. ways in which you can bring the community in and make it a popular education moment. Oh, totally. I see that not unlike the way I feel about public schools and the system of public education. Definitely a flawed system, definitely imperfect. And many schools are, you know, struggling with a number of things, but they, they, because of the kinds of places that they are, for me, they're always worth the struggle. There's so much potential. And I see museums in the same way. These are spaces that where ideas and, and, whose knowledge is of most uh, worth or whose knowledge should be in the museum. All those ideas are, are battled over and those are righteous battles. We should be having them and debating them. I mean, I, I was just thinking about the just battles about ethnic studies right now. You know, that, that is a fight we should be having whose mm -hmm. histories are told. I think we should be discussing that and making it happen in those schools and in our museums as well. 
Right, but you know that particular struggle that you raise. I mean, the right wing, which seems to have nothing going for it except possibly stirring up cultural wars, <laughs> has taken full aim at the idea of the sixteen nineteen project, yeah. um, ethnic studies, and so on. And they're passing laws in state after state, which say things like in Florida, the law says explicitly, history shall be taught not as a construction and not as an interpretation, but as the facts. And then you say, really? What facts? Yeah, here was this uh, genuine adventurer in the pay of Castilian royalty. Is that the fact? And he was yeah. also a genocidaire. I mean, is that the facts? Uh, yeah. No, that's not the facts. You know, the yeah. facts are kind of policed very carefully. But I think, I mean, I think we need, you and I and the folks we hang with, need to have a, a concerted campaign to fight this. Because it's, it's right, it should be contested, but what, what is to be done? What is our, how do we contest it? What should we be doing? You yeah. and me, others, what should yeah. we be doing? Well, you know, I think the fighting is happening, though, already. I mean, around schools and around museums, but just to focus on museums. And museums and related forms, monuments, memorials, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, you know, they're this boards of... City boards are making, you know, fighting right now about whether or not we're going to have Columbus Day or we're going to have Indigenous Peoples Day or exactly. what will be the statues. I mean, the groups are galvanizing around those things. On another front, kind of a different area, there is a wave of museum unionization happening across country right now. The year before the pandemic, 40 museums out of a field of like basically none except the Smithsonian, 40 museums unionized and then the number like quadrupled throughout the pandemic. As, really? as people got laid off and fired, as wow. museums closed, people organized. The Tenement That's Museum, I, mean, I, I, I can't name them all. I just all, all the museums are, are organizing. So I take a lot of heart from that. I think that's a very exciting move. Right. As right. In, especially these places that have been like, oh, we're, we're, we're above that. We're not about working. We're, we're actually the special people at the special museum. Right. But no, you, you actually get a paycheck and it's, you know, there's some interesting yeah. things about museum work and it's also notoriously low low paying and, and it's, you work. Know, and it's, yeah, work. it's work it's work it, it reminds me of the kind of uh, you know the kind of things that teachers are told you should be in this for your heart well yeah. i am in it for my heart and i want a decent wage also and exactly righteous working conditions because that you know because that'll make me a better teacher and i think museum workers i did not know this phenomenon was happening but what it brings to mind is we're in a moment where the long long winter seems to be coming to toward an end where the thaw seems to be spreading and i've been irked from the beginning with this idea we have to get back to normal as an educator i don't want to go back to an apartheid school system right. you know so i take heart from aaron Dottie roy the great novelist who talked about this being a moment where there's a portal now you know this isn't a destination it's a portal let's not go back to normal yeah. you know dragging the the colonialist racist history with us let's go through the portal to something new so i think about this a lot in education what is something new in arts education in museums what's something yeah. new well, something new right now is Strike MoMA that, that's, that's happening in New York City as we speak. Decolonize this place, which is a, like a consortium or coalition of groups in New York, uh, has come together and they've been doing a rolling series of shutdowns and strikes and other kinds of interventions in museums in New York calling for um, uh, 
a whole range of things, but, you know, decolonization, but also um, the establishment of decolonization commissions, uh, getting the name of Sackler out of these museums. They're linking together a lot of issues. Yeah, free Palestine is part of the discussion and the relationship of the boards of directors of these museums to the weapons that are used against Palestinians, but also protesters in the streets of the U.S., so they have managed to get people kicked off these boards or to resign from these boards. And the work has been going on all more than a year now. Uh, so and they have had some successes, which is great. You know, Nan Golden is an artist who founded a group called Payne Sackler. And it's about directly addressing uh, the opiate peddlers, the Sackler family and all their minions. And they have, you know, she's keeping that with all these, you know, many, a uh, big group of activists, uh, the, that issue in the forefront and demanding, yeah. uh, you know, that the, the funding that the Sacklers have be used to help people, uh, you know, heal from these addictions that were in many cases just uh, foisted upon them through these unscrupulous um, capitalist jerks. Peddlers. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah peddlers. drug peddlers. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah. an, uh, it's amazing. I mean, the Sacklers, for folks who don't know, are responsible for 500,000 plus deaths from the opioid crisis, which they created, managed, uh, promoted, and they have never faced any criminal exposure. And, you exactly. know, so they 500,000 dead, and it's a nonviolent, to the extent it's a nonviolent crime, they call it, whereas some low-level drug dealer in Chicago has a beef with a competitor yeah. and pulls a gun and ends up 10 years in prison, you know, because it's a violent crime. Yeah. And I find these distinctions so egregious. I mean... And a lot of this organizing that's happening is really, um, that's going on right now, is really pointing to the way that museums have allowed themselves to be used uh, as uh, sites of reputation washing for these criminals, really, who are on their mm -hmm. boards of directors and affiliated mm -hmm. with them in other ways, and, um, and really calling museums to account for that. Museums, which are in some ways all public institutions, although, you know, they receive, receive various uh, forms and often dwindling forms of direct public support. They are all public institutions through their nonprofit statuses, except for the ones that are private institutions. And then those are tax write-offs in other ways, you know? Yeah. So, so all, the public has a stake in what these museums do and who affiliates with these, these museums and who gets their reputations cleaned up by these institutions. Yeah. It's an intriguing thought, the idea that uh, you raise the point about them being public institution, why not make them public? Why not make them both accountable to and supported by the public? Um, it's, it seems so obvious when you just said it. Um, but, but just imagine if you tried to clean up the board's of trustees of any art institution <laughs> or any university. I mean, it's an, it must be an absolute agonizing moment for people who are thinking about who, who run these institutions are thinking about this because you take the University of North Carolina where they just dropped a, a rock on Nicole Hannah Jones, yeah. you know, that and one of the things that they said is she doesn't have an academic background. Well, I mean, if if an entire department <laughs> had won the awards that Nicole Hannah Jones has won, they would be considered a, a top rated department and she's won them all by herself, right? But then you say, oh, there, she doesn't have a an academic background. Let's see how, how many people on the board of trustees have an advanced degree. None. Uh, the chairman of the board of trustees made his millions selling boats in North Carolina. So you think, wow, these guys are judging. And this, as you know, is true at the University of Illinois and oh, every sure. place we work. I mean, 
Yeah. Know? So it's just intriguing to think, what would it mean if we really took seriously the idea that museums ought to be public? Yeah. Oh, well, I think the, the case of Nicole Hannah-Jones is, is a really good one, but I, I also think closer to home, the case of Stephen Salida, who did have an academic background, as a matter right. of fact, and, right. and his ideas still proved to be too, you know, incendiary for that, for that institution. Uh, for, you know, for our institution. Yeah, Teresa is referring yeah. to a professor who was hired. Um, this must be almost a decade ago now. Yeah. But he yeah. was hired by the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And he was hired, I think, in Native American studies. He was, um, yeah. Indigenous but he's a Palestinian, a Palestinian mm-hmm. scholar who had some, who had uh, on social media um, very, very seriously contested the murder of his uh, people in the Gaza Strip, and um, the board of trustees couldn't stomach him, so they they yeah. uh, decided they would rather pay the penalty of um, a lawsuit and all the rest of it to get rid of him, and, and they did. So, yeah, yeah that's a, another example. And, and like the case with Nicole Hannah-Jones, the decision of the board of trustees went against the decisions of the people in those departments, you know, the faculty and uh, all those people who would be colleagues with Nicole Hannah-Jones and Stephen Salida and probably many others um, wanted to work with these people, validated the, the brilliance and the accomplishments, and the board of trustees had a whole other agenda, which does show you, you know, the, the political nature of these kinds of decisions. Yeah, yeah on, but, a, on a much smaller scale, but but uh, just because I have to apologize to you, because when I retired from UIC, I was voted for emeritus status by the yeah. department, the college, the provost, the chancellor, and it went to the board and they turned me down <laughs> and it never happened before. Yeah. And it was simply because of, of my background. And um, now they have a whole set of standards you have to pass to be emeritus. So oh. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there you are. <laughs> but that's a much smaller scale, but it's the same idea that somehow... They're yeah. trying to police this stuff. And I think that, you know, to me, the slogan we ought to be campaigning under when it comes to these cultural wars is tell the truth, the whole unvarnished truth, the whole contradictory, messy truth. I don't think I don't think yeah. we are at all afraid of the truth. I think we want to we want to have that discussion and want to teach the conflict. We want to teach the contradiction. I don't know if you've read. Um, I don't know if you've read uh, uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen's new book, The Committed. Nope. I think you would like it, but did you read the first one, The Sympathizer? No. Well, well worth reading. Okay. But, but he, he, in, the first, um, in the first 30 pages, he has, his narrator says at one point, ah, contradiction, the universal body odor of the human condition. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. that's it. <laughs> that's I love it. that. Yeah. Well, so, just to get back to the, the thing about teachers uh, and, and, and the book, you know, and, and classrooms and museums, um, museums are full of those contradictions. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the beauty of the things, uh, in, of the collections, you know, we've, we've all gone into a museum and seen something that just, you know, took our breath away. At the same time, we've many of us gone into museums and seen things that were just horrifying, reminds us of, of who humans are and what humans can do in, in the whole, the whole range of ways. Exactly. And that's why they are such great places to teach, you know. Exactly. Yeah, to raise those questions up with students. 
But so, we should remind ourselves, just as we, you and I have talked about this a lot, is when you're writing, write into the contradiction. When you're teaching, teach the contradiction. Don't, don't. The the point isn't to have the last word. The point is to offer up the possibility of the next word. And I think that's mm-hmm. so such an important thing. Tell me before we have to come mm-hmm. to an end. Tell me what you're working on, what you're reading, what you're nerding out about. Uh, uh, what's going on in your world? Yeah. Well, I have been doing actually a lot of disability justice reading. I, I was working with a, a just a fantastic doctoral student at UIC, Allison Copet, who just defended her dissertation a couple weeks ago. Great. And her dissertation was just wonderful and opened me up to all kinds of other people to, to know about and read about, like Sky Cubicube, who's a wonderful activist in Chicago, an artist, queer, trans, disability justice activist that has a a clothing line, um, designs for people with disabilities, all premised on the idea of radical disability. They are bright, they are spandex, they are tight. Yeah, and they, and they are also all about access to all the things that create comfort for a various disabled bodies. So th- that has just been giving me a lot of energy. And I'm also supposed to be working on a book, which I honestly have not been working a lot on, but I think it's a good book and I want to do it uh, about museums and social movements and more of a history because the, there's, it's histories I want to teach in my own classroom. Uh, like Chicago is a fantastic example of cultural uh, justice activists like Margaret Burroughs, who founded first the Ebony Museum, now the DeSable Museum of African American History and Art, or, um, um, Helen Valdez was the co-founder of the National Museum of Mexican Art here in Chicago. And Peggy Montez, who co-found or was the founder of the um, African-American Bronzeville Children's Museum, which is the first and the only African-American children's museum in the world. She likes to remind people. So there's something about that, you know, that people here in this city are seeing the connection between black power movements, um, racial justice movements of various kinds. And then also that access to culture, you know, access to these spaces. And so I want to tell those histories because I think they're really inspiring and important for people to know about. I think it's hugely important. And I think the way you just described it is... Uh, should en- energizes me and should energize you. So <laughs> I'm happy to sign on. I'm retired, so I'll sign on as your unpaid intern and uh, and get the damn thing done. So sounds like a really important book. Listen, uh, we should come to an end, but it's always a delight to see you. And um, thank you for spending an hour with me. Um, really appreciate it. Really admire this work. And go forth and 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 keep rising. <laughs> thank you, Bill. Had a lot of fun with you today. Okay, Therese. We'll talk soon. Bye bye. Love to your family. Thanks. Before we leave today, we have a homework assignment. A curator is the custodian or keeper of a collection. Think of yourself as a curator for a moment, a collector of your memories, of course, your own struggles, and your own life. Spend a few minutes sorting through your memory and curate your efforts to organize and rise up. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malik Aline, producer, 
co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a vision of the spectacular. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.